from 11FS. This is Fintech Insider News. Today, Google ditches its Plex checking account plan, Monzo withdraws US banking license application, and 11FS shares a boat with Bond. All this and more on today's show. But before we start, we want to just tell you something about what we're cooking up at 11FS and a quick word from our sponsors. Temeros is a world leader in banking software, helping over 3,000 banks deliver outstanding banking experiences to more than 1.2 billion people. Scale 2021 is Temenos's dedicated, free-to-attend, virtual developer event. It includes customer presentations, product demos, roadmap sessions, as well as opportunities for you to speak with Temenos experts. You'll also hear insights from industry leaders on current technology trends and how they impact banking today. Whether you're a developer, consultant, or business user, discover the latest in banking technology with Temenos software. Search Temenos Scale 2021 to find out more. The evolution of financial services has opened up a whole new world of possibilities for banks. But to harness those opportunities, they need to break free from traditional constraints. Our new report, in association with Infosys Finical, explores how banks can overcome these challenges to see the full benefits of a truly digital world. Find the report at bit.ly forward slash banking business models. Welcome to episode 570 of Fintech Insider. My name is Benjamin Ensor, and I'm joined by my 11FS colleague, Guerra Kawana. How are things, Guerra? Doing okay. Having a lot of technical glitches this week, but um, pushing through. I think it's, I'm going to chalk it up to Mercury being in retrograde. I kind of knows what that <laughs> means. As always, we're joined by some very special guests. So making a welcome return to Fintech Insider, I'm delighted to welcome my former colleague, Ron Shevlin. Director of Research at Cornerstone Advisors and Forbes contributor. Ron, thank you for joining us on Fintech Insider in such a, an exciting week in Fintech. How are you doing? Doing great. Thanks for uh, having me, Benjamin. It's great to uh, be chatting with you again. Indeed, indeed. And then making another welcome return to Fintech Insider, we have Emily Nickel, Fintech correspondent at Financial News. Emily, thank you so much for joining us today. How are you doing? I'm doing good. It's good to be back. Um, I don't think I was on this episode too, well, this podcast too long ago, so... I guess Libra season is doing well for me if we're sticking with the astrological themes. (laughs) (laughs) And our third guest today is Kate Drew, Director of Research at CCG Catalyst. And for the sharp listeners among you, that means there's three directors of research on this call, so it could get a bit geeky. Kate, thank you for being here. How are you? I'm very well. Thank you for having me. It's great to be back. It's a pleasure to have all of you. And so with that, let's get into the news. So our first story is that Google is scrapping its plan to offer bank accounts to users. This was reported in the Wall Street Journal and and many other media. Google has decided to abandon its plans to pitch bank accounts to its users. Its parent company, Alphabet, announced almost two years ago that users of the Google Pay digital wallet would be able to sign up for enhanced checking accounts and debit cards. Google was working with some big financial institutions, including Citigroup and Stanford Federal Credit Union. The new offerings, called Plex accounts, would sync with Google Pay and provide a digital dashboard of where and how users spent and saved. It was initially expected to be launched last year, 2020, but a series of missed deadlines, along with the April departure of the Google Pay executive who championed the project, seems to have prompted Google to pull the plug. A Google spokesperson said the company would now focus primarily on delivering digital enablement for banks and other financial services providers, 
rather than us serving as the provider of these services. So pulling back from a direct offering. I'd like to start with you, Ron, because you recently wrote about this on Forbes.com in an article saying that Googleplex could have made a big dent in the banking market. What's your take on this story? Oh, a couple of things. Uh, I'm kind of disappointed to see it getting pulled. Uh, if you looked at what they were planning to do, it, it really promised to be a very innovative type of a, of a, of a checking account. There were some new features that were planned that would be very interesting, like the ability for card uh, account holders rather to uh, use a get gas or a get food button and find the, the nearest gas station or restaurant, automatically pay for it. Uh, there were some promised new PFM, personal financial management features that would uh, automatically scan transactions instead of having to uh, manually load them in and provide some analysis. Uh, they were even going to do things like um, you know automatically scan receipts if you took a picture of them in your in your smartphone. So uh, you know, and then if you think about the longer term potential of Google, you know, providing the Chrome browser. The, uh, the potential opportunity for having a checking account that was so in tightly integrated into the browser and then, you know, for Android phones, potentially integrated so deeply and tightly into the device itself, I thought held a lot of promise. You, you did mention that uh, both Citibank and Stanford Federal Credit Union were potential partners, and those were the original two. Uh, but there was a number of other financial institutions, some large, some small, some digital banks like uh, Bank Mobile had signed up as well. Uh, and having talked with a number of folks from those institutions, they were looking at Google at providing you know, the level of innovation that they could not have provided or delivered themselves. And so ultimately what I think kind of happened here was, uh, I think definitely one thing and potentially another. The definite thing I think that happened was you, you alluded to the uh, champion leaving. And I think that left a big hole of support within Google. There were some announcements a few weeks ago that there were uh, personnel departures within the Google Pay group. And I think that might have hurt somewhat. The potential thing that might have happened came potentially from a different part of the organization altogether. Uh, you know, Google's got, uh, the, the Plex account was part of the Google Pay group. Uh, and of course, Google has made a lot of strides uh, in their cloud division with the Google Cloud product offering. And I think there's the potential that perhaps there was some organizational conflict as, as uh, Google was selling into some large banks uh, providing cloud services, and I can see some potential uh, conflicts with some of the financial institutions saying, hey, why are you competing with us on the uh, product side uh, when uh, you're trying to sell us cloud services? I I'm not totally convinced that that was the case, but uh, I think it's a potential, but I'm willing to, to bet that the uh, organizational support uh, lack uh, with the um, with Caesar leaving a few months ago was a big impetus of them pulling out. Yeah, I, I think I think you could be right that the cloud division could have could have had an impact here. So clearly, you're saying you know that this is a this is a big loss or a, potentially a big loss for for innovation. Kate, what what was what was your take on this story? I mean, who who do you think wins here and who who loses? Um, is this is this unmitigated bad news or is there any any upside to this? What what did you think? I think, unfortunately, I, I agree with Ron and, and who loses is, is really going to be the consumers who would have benefited from, from this project, from the additional features and from the innovation that a company 
like Google can bring. I think it's unfortunate that, you know, at, at big companies like this, even, you know, the most interesting and innovative plans get scrapped all the time because people move on or the initiatives lose support. But I do think that there's still a lot of opportunity for Google in financial services, specifically in payments. I know they're now partnering with Western Union and WISE to allow U.S. users to send money to Singapore and India, and they have plans to add a number of new markets this year. So I think there's still a lot of opportunity for the Google Pay ecosystem. Um, and, and that will benefit consumers ultimately. But but I agree, you know, this is definitely a disappointing loss for for innovation in the market for sure. Emily, do you see do you see the same things the same way? Do you do you think it's a, a loss for consumers? Do you see any winners from this? What's your take? Yeah, I mean I have a slightly different perspective coming from the UK because banking innovation over here is quite well established. So we're not Consumers over here aren't, you know, grasping for the same level of innovation that Google might have brought to, to the US with this kind of project. But saying that, I think Google is probably also a big loser here because with this kind of checking account project, they would be able to get access to so much data. And data is obviously king at the moment in banking. They would have got so much more in terms of transaction information and especially with some of the products you mentioned that they were working on. Like the, the level of information they could have got would have been invaluable. So that's really a loss for them. If there are any winners, it'll be the banks because they now get to hold on to that data for a little bit longer. It's obviously not going to be the same size of a trove as they might have got if Google had launched this because, you know, somewhere along the way they would have got that data too. But being able to, you know, now dominate this market if they manage to get the innovation up to scratch and get more information, you know, what we're spending our money on and where and how, that that will be a winning for them in the end, I guess. Guerra, I've, I've heard a number of people this week sort of saying, oh, this has, this has implications for big tech. It shows that big tech's ambitions in financial services are not going to come to pass and so on. Do you think that's right? Or do you think you can't really read too much into Google doing something that what that means for Amazon or Alibaba or someone else, one of the other big tech giants? I think that big tech does have, like, I think everyone should be afraid of big tech in terms of once they wade into your space. I think in this specific scenario, like, a retail offering or even just a banking offering, yeah, had banks shaking in their boots. But I don't want to count them out just yet because, you know, like banking is hard to do. Like obtaining a license, we're going to talk more about this later, but obtaining a license is really hard to do. Dealing with the regulatory like headache around all that is hard to do. Customer service, like banking operations, it's tough. Um, you know, I think I, I, if I could, you know, look into the future, I'd say that like, this might have been a really good learning experience for them and an experience for them to also build some cool stuff that they can maybe sell later. Uh, so we're going to talk about Starling in a bit and how they've, they, you know, they've started selling their core banking platform. So I see a world maybe in the future where like um, Google enters the Bass stack and steps away from, you know, the customer experience layer, but instead goes into like the capabilities and offerings layers, uh, which ena enabling others to offer banking services. So Google has, you know, known all around the world, uh, being, you know, in America mostly, but uh, for their size and their impact, but like they do have a global reach and, and there's opportunities for them to offer banking as a service in, you know, the global south where they are pretty well established as well, offer payments, rails, payment services there. Um, I don't know, I think a part of this also, I think maybe they've backed off because of scrutiny uh, from 
you know, the, the Congress and regulatory bodies around antitrust. So having becoming a bank, that's like, oof, like that, that have so many eyes on them. So I, I think that this, I think this is, this is a lesson for them. And I, I feel like we're going to see the fruits of that lesson um, in a banking as a service offering. Interesting. Ron, I want to pick up with you on something Emily said. So Emily sort of talked about the banks being the winners here, and I, I can see that. But surely, I think you were saying some of the smaller American banks that were partnering with Google were sort of set to tap into a lot of innovation. What, what's your take, Ron, on, on what this means for the big American banks versus some of the smaller credit unions and community banks? Um, does, does this Is this a big deal for, for some of them? Yeah, I, that's right. Disagree with Emily, but I would guess I think I would interpret it a little bit differently. I don't think the banks are winners or losers in in this. Uh, I mean, look, we had Citibank, BMO, Harris, which were both planning to partner with Google on this, Bank Mobile, and I think uh, Green Dot were also partners. And I mean, these are large you know companies as as well. And then the smaller institutions were looking to to gain. What, I mean, what are they really gaining here? They're they're trying to expand footprint. Now, Citibank is a huge bank, but doesn't really actually have a very huge retail footprint. Uh, BMO, another large institution, but again, a very more regional type of footprint. And so, you know, the banks don't win because of this. They, in fact, they, they kind of lose. This was an opportunity to provide something more innovative in the marketplace and something for them to expand their, their geographic footprint uh, and, and then leverage a lot of Google's capabilities. So I don't think they actually win because Google's pulled out here. The other thing I wanted to comment on uh, was the question you, you had posed to Guerra about the, the big tech. And, and I think it's, I think it's a, a bit of an overgeneralization to characterize this as a win or lose for, for big tech or, or anything about big tech. Because if you Look at the strategies of Google and Amazon versus, say, Facebook and Apple. You really see two different kinds of strategies here. Apple and Facebook have really kind of gone to market as financials or attempted to, to offer financial products in competition with the existing market, whereas Google and even Amazon have not. And, you know, look at, uh, you know, a couple of years ago, Amazon made news when it announced that it had provided a billion dollars worth of merchant cash advances to the merchants on its platform. And everybody thought, oh, look at that. Amazon's getting into financial services and it's going to put all the banks out of business. Uh, well, they didn't. And what they end up doing was they ended up partnering with Marcus from Goldman Sachs to provide not just small, uh, not just to provide merchant cash advances, but, but to provide small business loans altogether. And at the time, they actually leaked, supposedly leaked, a wireframe of a broader marketplace that was going to offer. It's in Amazon's DNA to be a platform, to offer you know, as, as many products from as many providers as possible, not to go it alone. And I think that was the direction Google was going as well. And, and so I think there's kind of this dichotomy in, the, in big tech between Google and Amazon's approach versus Facebook and Apple's, which uh, tends to be very different. Really interesting. Okay, let's move on to our next story, which is also sort of about competition and innovation in the American banking market. So this is the story that uh, the British digital bank Monzo has withdrawn its application for an American banking license. Um, so this was covered in the Financial Times and Financial News and various other um, outlets. So Monzo has withdrawn its application uh, for an American banking license following discussions with the US regulator, the Office of the Comptroller of the Currency, which is quite hard to say, OCC. 
Monzo started to apply for a banking license back in April last year, April 2020, as part of an effort to grow its business. The talks with the OCC do not appear to have gone that well, according to both the Financial Times and CNBC. Monzo did a soft launch in the United States last June without a full banking license. It's been running a pilot program with a few thousand customers through a partnership with Ohio-based Sutton Bank. And Monzo has said it isn't the outcome it initially set out to achieve, and it would now build and scale its early-stage product offer in the States through existing partners. Emily, you wrote about this for Financial News, so let's come to you first. What's your take on Monzo's withdrawal? Um, So, yeah, we were hearing pretty much the same thing, that it had been talks with the OCC for a while about a banking charter, but those talks weren't going very positively, namely because... The OCC is becoming a bit more reluctant in handing out banking charters to companies that aren't making a profit. Um, And there are quite a few companies at the moment that are trying to get those licenses in place. And at some point, given how expensive the process is and how long it takes, it just becomes not really worth your time. And so from Monzo's perspective, what I was hearing is that there are other potential routes to market that they can use, whether that's continuing its partnership with Sutton Bank, which I think it will do, or other routes that they've got in in play. And in the US, at least, it's not as important for them to have a banking license as it is in the UK because of the way the interchange fees are structured. So in the US, they can earn a lot more just by being a payments company and having that partnership with Sutton Bank just from users using their debit cards or credit cards if they launch those um, to buy and sell things, rather than in the UK where they really need that banking license so that they can get access to customer deposits and use them for lending and other products. So I think overall, it's not necessarily a bad thing that they've had to withdraw their application. One thing I will think that is interesting to watch though is that Revolut is still in process to get its own banking charter and it's going to take a year or two, but if it does get that in play, it'll be interesting to see how the two competitors diverge in that sense and what Revolut can do with that where Monzo will have to fall back. Kate, I'd love to hear your, your view and also particularly you know, the, about the sort of difference in approach to regulation in the States compared with some other markets. But um, I'd love to hear what you think of this story. Yeah, so I think one thing that's important to point out and, and Emily picked up on this a little bit is that the partnership model is the prevailing model in the US right now for fintech neobanks. The most successful neobanks in the country, think Chime or current homegrown ones um, from the US, are, are all in the partnership model. And that's because it's extremely difficult to get a banking license in the US. Vero did it. I think it cost them about $100 million. It took several years, right? It's very, very difficult. And the partnership model has been successful here for for those that have done it. Chime, which is not a bank, it works with a partner, is profitable on an EBITDA basis, or it it claims to be right, and it's looking to IPO. And um, Monzo is, is still struggling toward profitability. So I think when you think about the model in the US, you know, it's not all about the charter. There are different routes into the market that have been very successful for some players here. Ron, you, you know the, the the market pretty well, as, as Kate does. Um, you know, we've seen a number of firms trying to get banking licenses in the States. Kate mentioned Varro. We've seen other firms like Robinhood, Brex, uh, Square applying for licenses. You know, do you, do you think the, the regulators are doing a good job of protecting American consumers? Or do you think they're sort of stifling competition? Or is it somewhere in between? What's your view? 
Uh, it's probably somewhere in between. You know, look, it, it's a business model decision. It, it, it's not this big philosophical thing. It's simply a business model decision. Uh, and whether or not you can maintain margins by having a partnership model where you're, by definition, giving up some of your margin to, to your partners versus not. The bankers will all argue that that the, 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 the challenger banks can't sustain their models with it, but I don't think that that's, that's necessarily the case. I actually think the bigger question to ask here is not whether or not Monzo needs the banking license or not, but whether or not its approach to the market, not just its business model, but whether its approach to the market is sustainable versus a Revolut. And here's why I say this. If you look at what's happening in the challenger bank space in the U.S., we're seeing a lot more specialization, you know, verticalization. I like to call them community fintechs now because they focus on specific segments of the market. Chime and Varo really do focus on a segment of the market. They focus on low to middle income consumers. And Chime in particular has succeeded because it has created product features that meet the needs of that segment. If you look at a lot of the other challenger banks that are emerging, like Aspiration with over a million, maybe two million customers at this point, it focuses on a segment of consumers who are focused on environmental protection and change. You've got uh, challenger banks like Panacea Financial who focus not just on physicians, but on young physicians. And when I've talked with uh, folks at Monzo at N26 when they've come into the U.S., I like to ask them, you know, what's the what's the great wrong in the world of U.S. financial services that you're going to make right by coming into the U.S.? And almost to a company, Benjamin, they say that the mobile banking experience in the U.S. is really poor and that the large banks have failed. And that's simply not the case. So I think the, the challenge for Monzo is not just do you need a bank charter or not, but does its model, uh, does its approach to the market work? And when I look at Revolut, uh, I see a company that's taking a bit more specialized approach. I, I know somebody who's the uh, senior executive at a uh, large community bank in the Midwest here in the United States. And she told me that despite the fact that she works for a community bank, she has an account with Revolut for one particular reason, because they do such a great job at international money transfer. And, and that's a big market in the U.S. and a growing market and, and can help their Revolut create a niche in the, in the market. So, you know, I think Monzo's challenge is it's not simply do they need a, 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 a charter or not, but whether or not their product differentiation and segment focus is, is on point. Really interesting. Guerra, I'm just going to come to you because you, you know Monzo pretty well. And do you agree with sort of Ron's analysis that Monzo's maybe lost its way a little bit compared with with, with Revolut? Or, or do you think Ron's being a bit a bit harsh? Um, I have to take my feelings out of this. Uh, <laughs> like, I, you know, I definitely have, yeah, I have, Monzo has a soft spot in my heart. I grew a lot there. I learned a lot there. And also, like, they they did so much to, to, you know, be the tide that rose all the boats in the UK banking ecosystem. But, yeah, ultimately, Ron's right. Like, you know, they've been there a couple of years now, really trying to find their their footing. And it's just, it's not worked out. And um, and I don't think it's for lack of, of investment. I don't think it's for lack of, of talent, even. I think it's just a lot. I think it's just the wrong, wrong direction, or at least, like, wrong approach. So you, I really like how you touched on, you know, these community fintechs 
And it's okay to have a, not like millions of customers uh, or, you know, half the U.S. population using you as a bank account, as a main bank account. It's okay to, to, to go after specific niche groups like, you know, like I really like Daylight, for example, who are a bank that's been, uh, you know, they, they serve uh, folks from the LGBTQ plus uh, communities and um, Greenwood as well, uh, uh, ser- you know, service, well, hoping to service folks, um, Black and Latinx folks. Um, I, I wonder what Monzo's niche could be, uh, and I, I, I really, I can't. I'm not American. I, I haven't spent much time in America, so I, I can't really speak to that. But um, I hope they figure it out soon enough because I think that their ability to deliver a really good customer experience is it's in their DNA. They just need to find the right lane and um, you know pedal fast. Emily, you you opened this story on on Monzo. Do you want to wrap it up with your sort of thoughts, closing thoughts on what this means for sort of Monzo or, or digital banks more widely? Yeah, I mean, I just wanted to say that I think that that we've really hit the nail on the head on how these digital banks have approached the market because in the UK, what Monzo and Revolut did when they launched is kind of a they just kind of went at word of mouth. They didn't really spend a whole lot on marketing. And it became actually a very controversial pain point in their journeys when they when Revolut started spending money on marketing because it was seen as a sign that word of mouth was starting to fall and they weren't really getting that like hype growth anymore. And now if you look at how their strategies are in the US, Monzo has been pretty quiet, but Revolut is doing a full marketing blitz. It's planning to do a credit card launch by the end of the year. It's hiring massively. It's CEO over there, Ron Oliveira, speaks. I've spoken to him a few times this year, and he's really, really eager to kind of get as many people on board as possible. So they're going to have billboards and TV spots. Whereas Monzo really hasn't done that. It's hoping its UK strategy will work again in the US, as far as I know anyway. And that doesn't really seem to be paying off. So I'd be intrigued to see if they do kind of change tack now that they're not going for this banking license because they said they'd rather use the money that they would have spent on a banking license in the US to help its UK operations, which aren't doing too well either. But actually, what if they want to make a success in the US, what they need to do is spend more money <laughs> because it, it, it just reallocating it to other areas like marketing, hiring talent, doing so much over there that they can really get it going because to be honest, they're a really tiny fish in a very big pond. Really interesting. I think we're upsetting the Monzo fans out there, but um, really, really interesting discussion. I do love Monzo, I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, we're just going to take a quick pause here while you hear from our sponsors, and we'll be back shortly. There is a better way to hire internationally, and it starts with deal. Everything from contract creation, record keeping, payments, and full-time employment is all in one place for teams all over the world. Companies anywhere can hire compliantly everywhere thanks to Deal. It's payroll and compliance built for today's worldwide workforce. To learn more, visit letsdeal forward slash 11FS. That's letsdeal, D-E-E-L, dot com forward slash 11fs and redeem an exclusive offer of three months free when you hire a contractor and 20% for your first year when you hire an employee. Customers expect more from their digital experience and their personal finance is no exception. BlueShift empowers fintechs and financial institutions to create secure customer profiles and intentional relevant experiences for customers. Whether in-app, on-site, in-branch or anywhere else, BlueShift's Smart Hub CDP helps brands like LendingTree and ClearScore turn data into personalised experiences that increase retention, satisfaction and revenue. Learn more about BlueShift at blueshift.com forward slash 11FS. 
So our next story is that Alloy has raised $100 million at a $1.35 billion valuation to help banks and fintechs fight fraud with its API-based platform. This story comes from TechCrunch. Alloy, which has built an identity operating system for banks and fintechs, has raised $100 million. Money has come from Lightspeed Venture Partners, which led the Series C round, which came only a year after Alloy raised $40 million in a Series B. The New York-based firm was founded to fix what it sees as a broken onboarding process that has historically involved a lot of manual review when people applied for bank accounts online. And over the past year, Alloy has evolved its platform to automate onboarding, identity decisions, and transaction monitoring. So, Kate, uh, we'll come to you first on this. Is the onboarding process something that's sort of currently on your radar? Is this something you're thinking about a lot at CCG or um, hearing about a lot from the market? It's funny that you say that. And I was really excited to see this story because my current project is actually focused on on digital account opening. And what I'm seeing is really this shift of the capability from a, a nice to have to a must have, right? Really driven you know, by the pandemic and the need to be able to open accounts and serve customers in the digital channel. And I think one of the things that happens when a capability makes that shift to must-have status is you start to think about, okay, now how can we move from baseline capabilities to differentiation, right? If everybody has this, then what comes next? And most of the innovation that we're seeing is in this area of data capture and, and validation, which is right where Alloy plays, right? It's an identity verification and decisioning platform. And fintechs in the US have, have built systems like these in-house. That's why companies like Current can open an account in two minutes, right? And so what Alloy is doing is essentially taking that technology and bringing it to the mass market. It allows you to validate someone's identity across a range of data sources in real time. So it's speeding up the process and enabling auto decisioning. And I think what's really important here is how widespread this technology is becoming and how quickly it's headed for, for ubiquity. Alloy is integrated now with most of the digital account opening providers that I've spoken with and even a few of the solutions from core vendors. Um, and just for some context, on average, over 33,000 applicants are auto decisioned daily with Alloy. So I think soon we're going to see a real shift in what's expected from an account opening standpoint as technologies like this really move toward ubiquity. And there's kind of this blending between reg tech and, and user experience, right? It's not just about how can we use technology to create efficiency and, and eliminate fraud. Those things are really important. But how can we also use it to do things faster and, and to deliver better experiences for customers. Yeah, I was going to say this is going to deliver a better experience to, to lots and lots of customers. 33,000 a day is, is, <laughs> is, a big, is a big number. Ron, what, what interests you about this story? I think Kate really nailed it. I think she's uh, on top of this. I couldn't agree more with everything she said. I, I, I think that the thing I would, would want to add to this is this is a great infrastructure play. And if you think about sort of the evolution of, of markets, 
you know, there might be a lot of product providers and service providers, but there tend to be just a smaller number of true infrastructure players uh, who tend to get really big and very valuable. And I think what Alloy is doing with this is making a pretty good play that it's going to be one of the remaining standing infrastructure players in the identity space. But, you know, going back to the conversation earlier about the big tech, I mean, this is this is where they can play, too. And I certainly envision a world where, you know, Google or an Apple wants to be the the identity operating system as well. And so, you know, I don't think it's a done deal for Alloy, but I think the the, the focus that they've got from a from a, a financial product account opening perspective is really strong. And I'm, I'm very bullish on, on their prospects. So we could see someone maybe coming and knocking on their doors in a couple of years and, and looking to acquire them, maybe a big tech or some other other firm. One of the things I thought was interesting in this story was Aloha talking about um, launching a product focused on credit underwriting later this year. Pr- presumably that's some of what they're intending to use some of the money raised for. And so they're looking to try and um, Im- improve the credit underwriting processes. Now that's very, very interesting. It's another you know, challenging area that, you know, again, there's often manual processes and so on. But it also brings in issues around, is there any bias in the underwriting, either bias brought in by a human or bias potentially brought in by a, a computer? And you know, the, the States in particular has some very strong rules about that. Um, but I'm going to start with Guerra. Um, do, you see, do you see issues with computers playing a, a bigger role in credit underwriting decisions? Do you think that's a good thing? Or do you, do you worry about the risk of bias? I see computers uh, and AI wading into the space as good if we, if if those companies and those teams have like ethics teams or at least like some kind of like approach to more thoughtful decisioning. Um, so you know we all know this in America specifically and also other parts of the global south. Like there's so much bias baked into a lot of the, the these digital solutions uh, around underwriting uh, in the states could be based on postal code color of your skin even in your in your IDV video that built by people who may may not have had ill intent but like it's it's baked into that bias is baked into what, what they've built so I, I I see this as as an interesting turn for them I see that also their data volumes the the volumes of, of facial and and just human data is going to be like a real asset so I wouldn't be surprised also if like a a Goog or an app came came in to put some money on the table. Ron and Kate, am, am I right in thinking that um, American lenders have to be careful about lending decisions because there are there are rules that mean you have to make sure you're not biased against any particular communities and so on, and that that potentially makes automating some of the credit underwriting more more complex. Yeah, absolutely. There's there are data fields that the lenders are not allowed or supposed to capture that would potentially, you know, reflect a, a bias. So, yeah, there's a lot of rules around that. And using alternative data sources or using an automated AI type of capability, it doesn't really impact that at all. I mean, obviously, there are you know, a lot of um, criticisms and critiques of AI systems because of potential bias that might be built in for the data. But but the regulations focus on the data, not the not the decision making technology. So, you know, this is this is going to be a problem of bias, no matter what approach anybody takes. The, the question is, is that, you know, not is it perfect or not, but does it make it a little bit better than than what we've already got? Nice. Kate, what do you think? I, I also I wonder exactly how Alloy will go about 
Ellie specifically will go about some of these other use cases because I don't believe that they use AI today. So they're using rules-based decision tree technology. And so maybe some of the issues kind of around AI specifically, they will be able to sidestep or, or avoid just by nature of their approach. Emily, I didn't give you a chance to, to, to chime in. What's, what's your take on this story? Well, actually, I just wanted to pick up on some stuff that other people have said and that I think that I, I struggle to see why a Google or an Apple or whoever would want to acquire a company like this when they're not using AI to make these decisions because it means that the technology that they're building up and the ways that they the data points that they're gathering to counteract this bias isn't as easily transferable into systems that these companies are already using, which are based on AI. So, and if it's just a case of kind of they'd want to get those data points in so that they can use them to better tackle bias than their own systems, how much is that really worth? Um, so it'd be interesting to see if this is like a, a company that is kind of building towards an exit or if it's a company that's building towards a brand new innovation that will then become the trend to use rather than using AI to tackle bias because it just seems so kind of out of step with what everybody else is doing. And sometimes that's great and sometimes it's not great and we won't see it work out. So well, let's let's watch the space. It's certainly a you know very interesting company with a with a very successful raise. So, okay, so let's move on to our our last um, sort of substantial story that we've got time to cover, which is this one comes from from the UK from Europe, which is that Starling Bank is to launch uh, or has launched a banking as a service package in Europe. So Starling Bank is one of the sort of crop of UK digital banks. It's planning to expand into Europe as a banking as a service package rather than as a customer facing proposition. So launching towards the end of next year, 2022, Starling is intending to launch its services in France, Germany, the Netherlands, and Spain. They dubbed it Starling as a service, and the offering will enable businesses to build their own financial products on its banking platforms, such as savings and current accounts, integrated digital wallets, kids' cards, and debit cards. Starling will handle the technical and regulatory demands behind the scenes, leaving businesses to take care of their customers with embedded banking baked in. Starling first launched Banking as a Service in the UK a few years back in 2018 and now has about 25 uh, payment and banking services customers. And this was uh, reported in Finextra and, and various other outlets. So we had a bit of a conversation about Revolut and Monzo earlier. And here we have Starling leading with a banking as a service proposition instead as a kind of different business model, a different path to expand. What do you all think of that? Who who thinks this is a really interesting move? Who, who's who's an admirer of what Starling has done here? Guerra, okay. What do you think, Guerra? Yeah, I think this is so cool. Uh, this is like the unsexy side of fintech. It's, you know, the, the back end. But it's like the coolest side because it, like Starling built, you know, they, they built the, their core banking. They built their, you know, payments. Everything was built from scratch. And to have that in-house to basically use it themselves um, scale a, a whole bank with it, and then open it out, open it up to the world is is really cool. I'm, I'm curious, like, how they're going to do that w- without like sharing too much of the secret sauce. But I, I know that this was something that other fintechs have have you know talked about on Twitter. I've seen people talking about on Twitter. Like, if only Monzo could share their you know a little bit of code around how they did this, or so so and so could do share a little a little bit about how how they've built that. It, it would open up so many doors to not only just okay competition, yes, but like even potentially that niche competition. So like more like customer focused solutions, allowing embedded finance. Um, 
yeah, I'm super, super bullish on, on banking as a service and and the doors it could open um, around the world. But yeah. Really interesting. Also, go Anne Bowden. Big fan of hers. <laughs> Emily, I think you had a, a strong view here too. Yeah, I mean, the fact that this story can kind of came as a, as a really big news story was, was a bit of a surprise to me because this just makes complete sense, right? They already operate banking as a service in the UK. So if Europe is where they're expanding to, then of course they'd be taking that with them as long as as well as launching their own um, bank there as well. But the interesting thing is that Starling doesn't have its European banking license yet. I, I actually contacted them to ask, so I saw this come out and I was like, oh wait, so did, did you manage to get it? Because they applied for a bank license in Ireland. Um, and no, they don't have it yet. So this whole endeavour kind of hinges on when that's coming. But I guess this is a good sign that it's kind of progressing well and we will be seeing them in Europe soon. So hopefully those things are going well for them. But a European license will definitely make them a bit of a differentiator because Revolut has a license in Europe, but no license in the UK yet. Monzo has a license in the UK and nowhere else, but it's not really planning to get one anywhere else at the moment, especially now that it's just exited the US market. So this will make Starling a full banking player on both sides of the pond. And that's really great. Ron, what's your view? So I may be like really totally off on this, but if Guerra's soft spot is for Monzo and my soft spot is for Starling, I've been a huge fan of what they've been doing from from day one. And the reason I think that this is such a good move, and this is where I might be really wrong, is, you know, in, in the U.S., there are a number of banks who have been pursuing a banking as a service strategy done very well. And I think the potential limitation they have is that they focus on expertise in a single product, typically debit. So they're great at providing debit as a service, but not credit, not ACH and, and other forms of products. Now, I think because of its strategy uh, of, of being more of a platform versus a single product provider, if I'm correct, I think what, what Starling's big advantage going into the rest of Europe with a banking as a service strategy is that it's not reliant on just a single strong product, but has a range of products and can bring this platform. So ultimately, you know, for the brands who want to get into providing financial services, you know, if they lock themselves into a, a bank who's got a banking as a service strategy, but only can provide a single service like debit, then what happens when they want to start getting into lending or insurance or wealth management and other types of things? They got to go partner with with other financial institutions. And I think if I'm correct about this, I think the big advantage Starling has is from day one, it'll have a much broader set of services and uh, you know more of a pool of best in class services um, to provide to the brands. And I think that's going to give them a, a pretty big advantage. Really interesting. Now, having said all that, tell me if I'm like completely wrong in it, but that's just sort of my reading of it. I think Guerra wants to come in on this. Guerra. Ron, you and I agree on a lot of things, and this is one of them. I, I wonder also if, if it's only just going to be the core banking as a service, but or if they're also going to be licensing like banking operational tools and, and software, because they, like, like Monzo and, and like a lot of other fintechs, have had to build stuff from scratch. So if you look at, if you're building a bank right now, you are using like, especially for banking operations and forget about like just the capabilities of the customer facing stuff for internal bank operations, fin crime, complaints management, customer servicing, like all these things are all these other like neobanks are using a Lego set 
of different tools and services that that fit in such a janky way. And Starling have been able to build this internally and do really well with it. Um, I wonder if they're also going to be sharing, or not sharing, uh, licensing and selling, it's not for free, those capabilities to other neobanks. Because the operational debt is something that a lot of fintechs and and you know businesses in general tend to overlook. So I, I hope they I hope that that's also included in their offering. I've got a question for for Kate, and this may be a little bit unfair because I noticed um, in the same week that Starling was talking about um, banking as a service in Europe, PNC Bank closed BBVA's open platform in the States. As, as, as some people will, rem- will remember, BBVA was one of the first banks anywhere in the world to take banking as a service seriously. They set up this operation BBVA open platform, and then PNC has has closed it down straight after the acquisition. And I'm just sort of I'm mystified by why would they, why would they do that as other banks are scrambling to launch banking as a service you know did did they look at the future and decide they didn't like it there Kate I wondered if you had any um, any thoughts on on that decision by PNC yeah that's a tough one they they had announced that they were going to be doing that that a while back so it doesn't come you know as a as a real surprise but I do think you know the banking as a service market in in the US is starting to get crowded. You have, you know, many banks getting involved. You also have technology players getting involved. So it's possible that it just didn't make sense for them from from a strategy standpoint. I, I fully agree with, with Guerra, though. I think it would be really interesting to see companies like Starling bringing the technology to the market as well and, and some of the capabilities they built in-house to, to the market as well. Because in the U.S., you know, most of the banks that are getting involved in this space are, are traditional players, right? I would love to see sort of the tech stack and the regulatory umbrella coming all at once the way I think it's it's a little bit more um, likely in Europe. Do you think that's, is that a regulatory driven thing or is it just who the players happen to be and that the way it's evolved in the different markets? I think in the US, you know, the companies that are really building, right, like Chime or Current, I mentioned they Current built its own identity decisioning system in-house. They're not banks, right? So maybe we will get to a point where they get licensed and then they bring the banking as a service stack to the market, but we're just not, we're just not there yet. Most of the institutions that are chartered that can provide that regulatory umbrella are, are older institutions, in my view. Maybe a last, a last question to you, to you Ron. Um, Kate just said she thinks that banking as a service market is starting to get a bit over, overcrowded in, in the States. Do you see that? Or from what you were saying about the firms being quite niche in what they do, do you think there's room for more providers in the States and, and worldwide? Uh, I'm actually still bullish that there's a lot of room for growth because I think there we haven't even really begun to tap the potential uh, of non-financial brands getting into the uh, into the space. Uh, I do think we'll start to see more specialization. As I said before, you know, I think many of those that are doing it now are doing it from a debit perspective, um, where you know as long as they're below that ten billion dollar asset level, they've got favorable interchange rates, and that's makes it worth sharing. But I think as this is this embedded finance trend continues to grow, I think there's there's a lot more room for uh, for for growth, and and I think the banks believe it too. I'm actually in the process of just wrapping up a report on, on this, having surveyed about 300 financial institutions, uh, and um, I, I, it's nowhere near a majority, but there's about one out of five banks who are expressing interest in pursuing a 
banking as a strategy, uh, banking as a service strategy, and they're clearly seeing some some opportunities to grow. I'm looking forward to seeing that report and, and reading your take on the market. Brilliant. Well, I could talk to you guys all day because I'm really, really enjoying this conversation. And I realize I'm not supposed to say guys. So you people, you folks. <laughs> so thank you. This is great. We need to get back to the news to cover off uh, a last few stories. So in, in this part of the show, we're going to quickly round up a few of the other stories from this week that we didn't have time to cover, um, but still deserve a quick shout out. Um, so Guerra, do you want to get us started? Yeah. So AI-based mortgage overpayment app Sprive launches. So Sprive is a new app that says it'll make it easier for people to make regular overpayments on their mortgage, potentially saving them thousands in the interest and making them more, them mortgage-free faster. Uh, so Sprive was founded by former Goldman Sachs banker Janesh Vora, who was inspired by the struggles he had when trying to overpay on his own mortgage. Sprive claims to demystify this process by calculating the overpayments a user can, can afford each month and paying them to their bank. If their bank has a minimum threshold for overpayments, Sprive can put the funds in a holding account until this figure is reached and the payment can be made. The app also provides users with a running total of the percentage of their home that they own, uh, their total debt amount and time scale in which they can pay it off. Uh, so as they keep overpaying, they will see both of these figures reduce over time, uh, meaning they could be more free more quickly. Uh, so the app just launched in the UK this week. This is so cool. As a millennial who is not a homeowner, I did not know about uh, overpayment. Like you could overpay a mortgage. Um, that's so cool. Didn't also realize that like banks make it intentionally hard to do that. So Sprive uh, could have, yeah, it's really, really good product. I hope um, the big banks don't come for them. This show is educational. Uh, so the next story is uh, US fintech Upgrade is getting into buy now, pay later with short term installment loans. So Upgrade, which is a fintech uh, founded by former lending club boss Renaud Laplanche, is working on a buy now, pay later style product. Upgrade's current offering takes all the purchases someone makes in a month and creates an installment plan for paying down the debt. Those payment plans are typically long term, ranging anywhere from six to 36 months and charge a fixed interest rate. Now, Upgrade is planning to launch a buy now, pay later style product that lets users pay off their debt in four months without accruing any interest. Um, so this product will be a little bit different to those offered by firms like Klarna, Affirm and Afterpay. Instead of offering an, a checkout option on merchants' websites, Upgrade will lump a user's card purchases together and invoice them what they owe over a four-month period. So, yeah. I think this is an interesting story. Um, we're seeing a lot of buy now, pay later stories coming out. I think my question here is, what's the route to market for this, right? If you're not at the checkout, how are you going to distribute? How do you reach your customers? And really, how is this different to a credit card? So interesting, but is it more of a media spin than a true innovation? But maybe I'm being a bit harsh there. Guerra, back to you. Perhaps, yeah, thank you. NatWest acquires pocket money app Rooster Money. So NatWest has acquired Rooster Money, provider of a pocket money and financial education app for kids. Uh, so this launched in 2016. Uh, the Rooster Money app loads pocket money onto a Visa debit card and allows parents to immediately freeze a card if it's lost and block payments to, a sp to specific merchants. Uh, probably Roblox is on that list for a lot of parents. Um, it also gives parents and children the real-time notifications on their spending and comes with a contactless counter so children know how far away they are from having to next use their chip and pin. Uh, features on the app include rewards charts and chore reminders to help encourage a savings habit from a young age. Rooster has over 130,000 UK users. Uh, it will be launched to NatWest customers in the coming months. 
this is really cool. Oh, I feel like fintech for kids is, is really cool. I feel like also an acquisition makes sense. Uh, how do you scale that? Uh, you know, children grow up eventually. But this th- th- this looks like a, a really good move for NatWest because historically banks have been trying to lock customers in at a young age so that in over the years they can offer them mortgages, credit lines, student loans, etc. So yeah, good. this is great. And I hope, uh, I hope the spirit of Rooster Money um, stays. Thank you, Quera. So we also wanted to mention that it's Bristol Technology Festival this week, for those of you who are in the UK, which is running from the 10th to the 15th of October. Uh, There's more than 50 events planned covering everything from AI to NFTs. All the details on how to attend can be found at bristoltechfest.org. Okay, let's bring everybody back for the final and silliest story of the week, which is that 11FS shares a boat with James Bond. So with the launch of No Time to Die globally over the last week, which was Daniel Craig's final outing as the British spy James Bond, 11FS brings you a special episode of its YouTube show Spotlight. The Royal Navy's destroyer HMS Dragon can be seen globally in the new James Bond film No Time to Die. 11FS's own David M. Breer and former US Managing Director Sam Maul previously hopped on board with commanding officer of HMS Dragon, Commander Giles Palin. They discuss leadership skills and the transferable skills between captaining a ship and running a business. And the video is available to watch from today on the 11FS YouTube channel. So, ships as a business analogy. Any use? Uh, Is leading a ship similar to leading a business or is it hocus pocus? Ron, I have a vague feeling you had worked in the US Navy briefly, but maybe I've got that wrong. Me in the Navy? No, No, sorry, that was all Sam. Nope. Any, any boating experience, Ron? You've, have you not sailed? I feel like you, you come across to me as a sailor guy. Yeah, maybe it's because I've got that logo, which I imagine a lot of people can't see right now. But since I do have a boat logo on my uh, shirt, maybe that's what's throwing you guys off. Uh, no, sorry, not Navy and uh, not much of a boater, I'm afraid. <laughs> but I do think the analogies are really strong in terms of uh, between managing a boat and managing a business, very complex and just difficult with a lot of different departments, divisions and people and objectives and alignment. So, but you should get Sam back on for, for that. He's he's the Navy guy. Well, he's he's in the video. So uh, everyone, everyone can go and watch watch him. And he's actually been doing a nice series on LinkedIn actually about his lessons from, from time on a submarine. One of the other stories that's come out of um, the film No Time to Die is this question about diversity, because Daniel Craig has been the longest serving Bond, although I think Roger Moore was actually in more films. So there's this question of, does Bond need a bit more diversity in its leading roles? My daughter has been advocating very strongly that the next Bond should be a woman. My son, you'll be surprised to hear, doesn't agree. My daughter and my son not agreeing. Um, <laughs> what, do, what do you guys think? Where, does the, where do you stand on a female bond or a, a, a bond of colour? Kate, Emily, Guerra, maybe over to the ladies. I, uh, <laughs> I personally would like to see Idris Elba play James Bond. That would be my vote. Yeah, that's what I was going to say too. I was about to say, as much as I'd love a female Bond, <laughs> if it's anyone but Idris Elba for the next film, I'm going to be very upset because they've been building this up for so long now. And also his rap game is on point and I'd love to see that happen in a Bond film as well. But yeah. that, that might be a bit of too niche. <laughs> no, no, I too understand who Driss is, um, Driss the rapper. But no, I'd love to see Idris Elba as a Bond. But I wonder... Uh, uh, as a, like a person of color or a woman as an agent of the state, it has to be subverted in some way for it to be like a new spin on it. Maybe it's maybe like a, an agent who deflected or 
I don't know, found a colony on the moon. I don't know, whatever. Let's let's re let's reimagine Bond. Yeah, we'll get like a 007 spin out. Bond invest in the next Bond. <laughs> Excellent. Okay. Well, that wraps up this week's news show. Thank you so much to all of our guests. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to all of you. So where can people find out uh, more about each of you? Um, let's start with uh, you, Ron. Uh, best place to find me is on Forbes. I write the FinTech Snark Tank blog, uh, publish every Monday. Go to Forbes, do a search for Snark Tank, FinTech Snark Tank, and uh, you'll find me. Thank you. Thanks. Emily, how about you? You can read all my stories on fnlondon.com. And if you're a subscriber, you can also subscribe to my weekly newsletter, The Fintech Files. But for anything else, I'm on Twitter at Emily J. Nicole. Uh, Kate? You can find me on LinkedIn or on Twitter at KM Drew. And you can find uh, all the research I publish on ccginsights.com. And Guerra. Yeah, you can find me at alonefs.com. I'm on the Bird website, uh, Twitter, uh, not Guerra. And also, very soon, uh, we are going to be potentially releasing some TikTok content under Fintech Insiders. So keep an eye out for that. I shall do. And uh, you can find me on 11fs.com or on LinkedIn. So thank you for listening. Please join the conversation on social media or email podcast at 11fs.com. Thank you so much for listening and goodbye. Goodbye.